If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, and even in chapter 11, and even on into chapter 12, we are given great instruction regarding faith. And I don't apologize tonight as we begin for a long reading of Scripture from Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, although we won't read all of it. There are some major elements that are and should be a part of our Christian life regarding faith that the book of Hebrews wants to tell us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And then the writer to Hebrews goes on to talk about this incredibly important element of our faith, and that is the subject of faith. Notice what he says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Notice the word hope there. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then if you go to chapter 11, you'll find out more about faith. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the safety of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised." Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight." Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hebrews 10 and 11 and 12 
are a majestic study for all those who believe in Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. It's all about faith. Faith. Let's look at Psalm 62 together as the setting for our study tonight of faith. That is a far better introduction to the topic of faith than than I could have ever conjured up reading the book of Hebrews together. What an insightful and impactful backdrop to this matter of faith in what King David is teaching us here in Psalm 62. Listen to what he says. To the choir master, according to Jedithon, a psalm of David, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increased, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Faith. Trusting in the Lord at all times. Believing in God for everything, in every circumstance. Faith in the Lord is the essential element in our relationship to God, and it is the most critical component in our response to God at all times, and particularly during the hardest times we face. That's why the Bible says so much about faith. Now, I know someone's going to say, well, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, now there are these, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Most certainly that is true of the Christian, but you can't even learn how to love as a Christian unless you have faith. That's why they're bound together. And your faith gives you hope, as we read in the book of Hebrews. And that hope is grounded in the love of God. So in Psalm 62 and in the book of Hebrews, we have faith, hope, 
and love, all bound together. And faith is the drive train that makes you and I believe that God can be trusted. That is faith. And it's most certainly confirmed to us in verse 8. Do you see that? It is the fulcrum, the the balancing arm, the, the banner verse of Psalm 62. Trust Him. Trust God at all times. That means in every circumstance. Trust, O people, O people of God. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. We can go to Him for safety, but only by faith. Only by faith. This is a, this is a banner verse, Psalm 62.8, that flies over the entire psalm, perhaps maybe over the entire book of psalms. Faith. Faith. Believing God. It's plainly and exuberantly announcing by David for how we are to live a life of obedience and worship before our Lord. And for us as New Covenant Christians, we would say our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom, upon whom, we are to trust at all times. I said to my wife just before we came to church tonight, I wonder what I may have missed or how my life would be different or how I might approach the trials of life and everything about my Christian life if I had trusted God more. Trusting God. Trusting God. Psalm 62 gives two scenarios. The first being a scenario that we might outline this psalm as follows. Trust God when you are under attack from your enemy. Trust God when you are under attack from your enemy. Now, I'm going to go a little bit out of verse order because I want to start there and then I want to give you David's own answer to trusting God when you're under attack from your enemy. Look at verses 3 and 4. David gives us there in verses 3 and 4 this scenario which threatens our faith in God. And the first has to do with our enemies, whether they're physical enemies or spiritual enemies or perhaps even both. Notice what David says. How long will all of you, referring to his enemies, how long will all of you attack a man the man being David himself, how long will all of you, my enemies, attack me to batter me? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only, these enemies of mine, they only plan to thrust me down from my high position. And for David, what high position might that be? He's the king. He's the king of the kingdom. If you can knock the king off the hill, then you can have the kingdom. You can be in charge. Remember that game that kids would play? If you can knock the king off the hill, then you can be king. And these are what the enemies of God have done, or at least attempted to. They want to knock David 
off the pinnacle of the hill. They want him removed as the king. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. Verse 4, they take pleasure in falsehood. This is how they do it. They tell lies about David. They bless with their mouths. Maybe that means something like this. Oh, King David, he's grand, he's glorious. But in their hearts, they're all about toppling the king. If he were like a leaning wall, what would they do with their foot? They'd push it over. If it was like a tottering fence, what would they do? They'd take their hands and they would thrust those hands forward and knock the fence down. They'd bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. In other words, ponder that. Think about it. I mean, it would be easy for us to say, I have robust faith in God when things are going so well, and I'm being blessed at every turn. But when there are trials in my life, when there are challenges of gigantic proportions, that's the very time frame in which I must trust God at the greatest level. When I don't see the future, when I don't know what's going to happen. And especially, I would say, my dear friends, when I think my enemy is right at the door. Now, perhaps you and I aren't struggling with enemies who would physically come through my front door, but perhaps for us, we might think of something like this, maybe the challenge of disease, the the enemy of death. Or perhaps we're talking about Satan and all that he wants to do to destroy our faith. Because at the same time, we're expressing great faith in God. Satan wants to destroy our faith so that we are destroyed in the process. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about how this Satan, this diabolical demon figure, wants to shoot his fiery darts at us so that we are utterly destroyed. I think it would be well for us to turn in our Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, to find out about these trials of the Christian life that threaten our faith. Because in James chapter 1, we are told a great many things about our faith and how we are to trust God even in the midst of our trials. And perhaps this would be very, very helpful to you. James chapter 1, listen to verse 2, beginning there. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your, what? Your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, my friends, trials of various kinds brought to us by God, testings, testings of our faith, are designed to bring steadfastness into our lives, allowing that steadfastness to fully mature in us until we are mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And, of course, we need great wisdom to be able to know by faith how we're to respond to those trials. And what we have to do is ask God for such wisdom. And we're told in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, that is, the wisdom to 
allow these trials to do their work in me so that I am perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God, I need your wisdom to know what to do, to how to trust you readily and willingly and strategically. And so I need to ask God. And if you lack wisdom for that trial, let him ask God. The believer is to ask God himself, who gives generously this wisdom to all without reproach. That means without holding back. And it, this wisdom, will be given him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person, that doubting person, the person whose faith is flagging, you must not suppose that you will receive anything from the Lord, including, of course, wisdom. Why? Because you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his highness, his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He gives a couple of examples. And then in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's exactly going back to verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here it is again, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. In other words, he doesn't doubt. He's not double-minded, but he continues to trust God by remaining steadfast underneath that trial. For when he has stood the test, and of course only God knows when that test is over, he will receive the crown of life. That means the crown which is life. That means the crown which is eternal life, which God has promised to those who love him. Oh, I wish we could go on. Here's the bottom line. When the enemy strikes, whatever it may be, and perhaps we may say it like this, when the enemy of doubt strikes, doubt, lack of faith, not seeing God's plan and purpose, because you and I, because we're not omniscient, can't see all of God's plan and purpose for our lives. And so we can doubt His plan because it doesn't seem to conform with our plan and purpose. And because of that, our faith begins to shrink. Of course, as Christians, not totally, but it can become so small and meager that when the enemies are around us, physically, spiritually, or both, we're not doing what Psalm 62 says, trust God at all times in every circumstance. So what do we do? What's the answer? Well, I could tell you, trust God. Trust God. Believe in God. That's be, that would be right. But what does David do? What, is, what does he do? How does he coach his own soul? Look at verses 1 and 2, Psalm 62. This is what he says. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. I suspect that what David may be saying here 
about silence is something like this. I'm expressing my confidence, my trust, my faith, my reliance on God, but I don't yet see the answer about God working to vanquish my enemies. I don't see it yet. I don't see it in real time. I'm not seeing this trial end. I'm not seeing this test as one I've faithfully passed. And so what does his soul do? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. In the deep recesses of my own heart, I wait. I wait in silence. I wait for God to act. How so? From Him comes my salvation. You can read there the word deliverance. That's, a, that's an alternative translation, deliverance. Deliverance from my enemies. Not just my eternal salvation, that's true too, but my current need for deliverance. So he's waiting for God alone in silence to act to deliver him. And then notice how he coaches his soul. Verse 2, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. Notice those three things, my rock, my salvation, my fortress, my rock, an impenetrable force that's lifted so high the enemies can't attain to it. My salvation, my deliverance from my enemies. And then he says, my fortress, a a place of safety that I run to. I, I go in the fortress of safety where I can't be attacked any longer. And then this great statement, I shall not be greatly shaken. By the way, here in Psalm 62, you don't see it come out as much in English, but there's a Hebrew word that is actually used in Psalm 62 six times. And it's the word only or alone. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 9. Notice verse 1, for God alone. Why does, why does David stick the word alone into the text? that we would sing or meditate on or read here in Psalm 62? Well, it's precisely because it is God alone who can do all of these things, right? Nobody else, nothing else. I can't run to a friend. I, I can't run to a plan. I, I, I can't find a, a book. I, I can't read a story. I, I can't do anything by way of any other resource, any other person, any other situation, any other scenario, but God alone. I love the alones of the Bible. God alone. God alone. I don't trust in anything else but God alone. Verse 1, God alone. Look at verse 2. He alone. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. Look at, look at verse 4. This is, this is God alone. They only, 
translated there as only. They alone are planning to thrust me down from my high position. But, but God's alone is greater than their alone. This is, this is my salvation. Look at verse 5. For God alone. Verse 6. He alone or He only is my rock. And verse 9. These children of men, children of man, they are together or alone or only lighter than a breath. What what can they do to me? It's God alone, God alone, God alone. You know, if you and I were able to read this from the Hebrew text of Scripture, we'd be saying, God alone, God alone, God alone, What can man do to me? They're only alone. They're only alone. They're lighter alone than a breath. I suspect in Hebrew, the song as we sing it is, God alone, God alone. There is nothing else and no one else that can stand up to God alone. But the key to it all is this, by faith, by faith. Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Moses, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, by faith, by faith, by faith, here's what they did. Here are their great exploits, and they would all tell you as that massive cloud of witnesses, it was only that way because of faith alone in God alone. This is is David coaching his people challenging his people. The king is on the hill. You better believe that. And as he's on the hill, he's providing a song for the people to sing. And here's what they should be singing. Trust God at all times, even when the enemy is at the door. Trust God. Trust God. He's my rock, my deliverance, my fortress, I will not be greatly shaken. Trust God when you're tempted by the enemy. Number two, number two, trust God when you're tempted by the world. Trust God when the enemy's at the door. And secondly, trust God when you're tempted by the world. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm assuming everybody tonight including myself, has at one time or another been tempted by the world. Anybody? I'm assuming that's the case. Of course we have. Of course we are. And David knows that very well himself. And he knows that about his people. Look at verses 9 and 10. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together or alone or only lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. What's he saying? It's easy. Here's what he's saying. Those of low estate, those who are by the world's definition, the dregs of society, the lowbrow, Uh, the people who aren't regarded as anything, they are but a breath. In other words, we don't even think about them. We see the poor, we see the destitute, 
We see those who are of low estate and we say they really don't matter. They're just a breath. Oh, but maybe those who are in power, maybe those who have a lot of money, maybe those who have high positions, maybe those who are at the very pinnacle of society, uh, perhaps we can trust in them. Perhaps they will provide for us. Perhaps they will provide for us protection. Uh, Perhaps those in high positions would be able to protect us from all harm. Uh, Perhaps we might be tempted to trust in them, trust in their security, trust in their care of us. If something of a great calamity were to happen in our neighborhood, we might even be tempted to say, where are the authorities? Where are they? Why aren't they here? Why aren't they doing something? And you'll often see that. You'll see a a tragedy happen and you'll have people almost immediately saying, well, where were they? Why weren't they there to help? Uh, It seemed as though the emergency personnel took so long to get there. Aren't they paid to do such things? Maybe that's because they're trusting more in those things than in God alone. So what does David say? Those of high estate are a what? A delusion. He puts them in the same category as those of low estate. He gathers them all up. Whether you're talking about the low estate or the high estate, whether the low brow or high brow, whether those who mean nothing to anybody in society or those in positions of high society, David says, in the balances they go up. This is the idea of the weight, right? The balancing of weight. In the balances they go up, it seems as though they are important preeminent, powerful. And yet, he says, honestly, when the weights and scales are balanced, they are altogether lighter than a breath. That's how important they are. You know what he's saying? Do not put your trust in anything other than God alone. You cannot put your trust in any man, any person, any authority, because at some point in your life, they will let you down. They will fail you. Don't put your trust in them. Another psalmist put it this way, do not put your trust in princes. They're they're lighter than a breath. You say, what does he mean by that? Here's how powerful and important, and trustworthy they ultimately are. You want to see it? (sighs) That's it. They're gone. One breath. That's it. That's the extent of it. That's how powerful they are. That's how long you can trust in them. One single breath. That's what he's saying. Verse 10, put no trust in extortion. What does that mean? Well, if you see that he says in verse 8, trust in God at all times, O people, here's its opposite. Put no trust in people, because if you do, they will what? 
extort you. If you think that you can trust mankind in general and you're putting all of your eggs in the basket of somebody who told me they'd take care of me, they told me that they would make sure that all of my bills were paid, and then you looked at your account one day and you saw that you'd been totally fleeced and that you have nothing. And of course, you're sad, and then you're mad, and then you're sad again, and then you're mad again, and then you want full justice, and then you reach out to the judge... And he says, apparently you didn't have the best firewall. Apparently all these protections that you set up didn't work. But, but, I, but, but I thought he was a trustworthy person. I, I, I thought she could be counted on. And they extorted me. They fleeced me for my money. And that's why he says, set no vain hopes. Don't put your trust in people, they'll extort you. Don't set your hopes on people, they'll rob you. And if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Don't put your trust in your money. How many people do you and I think who are not trusting God, but they're trusting in their riches, will find that in eternity they were completely and totally wrong? And they had absolute trust in their money. And it was to no avail. Listen to what the Proverbs say about something like this. Don't put your trust in riches. This, this, will, this will kill you. This will harm you. Look at Proverbs chapter 23. This will hurt you severely if you trust in it. Proverbs 23, 4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, this wealth, when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's the... That's the greatest verses I know of to say don't put your trust in your riches. And over in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, maybe this is the greatest one in the New Testament. This is, this is telling us don't trust in people, don't trust in riches, don't trust and have confidence in someone who tells you they're going to make you a lot of money, they're going to make you rich, think and grow rich. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But they are to set their hopes on whom? On God. On God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If you set your hopes on God, you're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. David is 
pleading with us to sing this kind of song. Look at what he says is the answer about not putting your trust in your riches, not not seeing your hope in the world. Look at verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. You know, I thought this was fascinating. You say, well, that sounds to be like an exact duplicate of verse 1. Well, it is in some ways, verses 1 and verse 5, but notice the difference. Look at Psalm 62.1. Notice the statement of fact. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. That's a statement of fact, isn't it? You're, You're stating the fact of what your soul is doing at that moment. My soul waits for God alone. But verse 5 is different. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. What's the difference? That's a verbal idea. You're talking to your soul. The first is a statement of fact. I'm waiting in silence. Verse 5, soul, wait in silence. The first is a statement of fact. The second is you're coaching your soul again. Wait in silence. Wait for God's answer. For my hope is from Him. He only, He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. That's that's David's great hope. Hope in God. Believe in God. Verse 8, trust in Him at all times, O people. And here's our prayer. We must pour out our hearts before Him. That's our prayer life. Pour out your soul. Pour out your heart. And what do you do? Here's the way you pour out your heart. O my soul, wait in silence. Just waiting for God to act. And if you believe that, if you have faith in such a God who is my salvation, my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge, He will deliver you. You say, deliver me out of my trouble, out of my panic, out of my fear, out of the loss of my funds, out of my disease, out of my trials, out of my tests. Yes, yes, He will even if it's not in this life. Remember we read in Hebrews 11? They look for the promise, they look for the promise, they look for the promise by faith, by faith, by faith, and they never saw it in this life. And apart from us, apart from the new covenant people of God, they would have been left in that position. But God had a plan that included even the new covenant reality that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day so as to seal the promise. And when that promise was sealed, you and I will see the very certainty of such promises even if it's not in this life. It shall be in the life to come. There's this sweet continuity between this life and the life to come. 
You see, if, if you set your hope on your riches, if you, if you put your faith in others that they will make you such riches and that your riches will grow and grow and grow. You remember the man in the gospel accounts in Luke's gospel who was so rich and he had so much produce that he wanted to build bigger barns so they could put his produce in those barns and he was fat and sassy. And the Bible says, Jesus himself declared, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. That means tonight you're going to die. And now who will own what you possess? See, if you put your trust in riches, if you look to the world for your solace, David says, your soul will be impoverished. Your faith will be shattered. So put your hope in God alone. Trust Him at all times. And then as we close, look at verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. That's a, that's a Hebraic poetic way of saying for the sake of emphasis, no, not once God has spoken, but twice I have heard this. And what have you heard? That power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Oh, that's so good. Power and love. Power and love. He has the power to deliver me. And he has the love behind such power to deliver me from all alarms. He loves me. He loves you. God's God's love and his power And please don't miss the latter part of verse 12. For you will render to a man according to his work. Uh Uh-oh. Does that mean work salvation? Not at all. Here's what it means. For those of us who are in Christ, the work that Jesus did on the cross will be the very work that God renders on our behalf because we're safely in Him. What kind of security is that? Listen to this. By faith, by trust, by reliance, I've put all my trust in Jesus Christ. That's what what God calls us to do. He commands us to believe in Jesus. And when I believe in Him, I'm safe and secure from all alarm. And when God comes to render the works of every man, it says it right here, for you will render to a man, to mankind, according to his work. Here's what I say. When I stand before the judge, the powerful one, the loving and gracious God of the universe. I will trust in nothing else and no one else save Jesus Christ and His blood atonement and God will render a verdict for me that I am not guilty because Jesus Christ died for me 
and I'm safe in his arms. For everybody else who's outside of Christ, the Bible says here, you will render to that man, that woman, according to their work. The only thing they can say is I did this and I did that and I tried to be a good person and I tried to do the right thing and none of those things will ultimately be a rendered verdict of not guilty because we can never be good enough. We could never do all the things that we should do, must do. And therefore, I'm trusting not in the works of my life, but in the work of Christ for my life. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this beautiful psalm is a psalm of great hope and sure deliverance. And if you're going to render to me the works that have been done, I say to you, Lord, I cannot trust in anything I've ever done. I trust alone in Christ. I trust alone in the work that Christ did on my behalf. He lived a perfect life. He died a violent death. He atoned for my sin. All my sins are forgiven in Him. And that's what I'm trusting. That's the person that I'm trusting. And I pray that I will be rendered a verdict of not guilty when I stand before the righteous judge. I don't want to put my trust in my ability or anybody else's ability to keep me from my enemies. And I dare not trust in the uncertainty of riches because there will be extortion and robbery and thievery and unrest. And I don't don't put my trust in anything of this world. I put my trust alone in Jesus and what He did. And by faith, I trust Him at all times. May it be so for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.